Good morning to all of you that are here, um, and those of you listening also on our web resources and podcasts. Today we're going to continue our series on the parables of Jesus, and we will focus on the story of the wise and the foolish builders. My name is Marty Weichart. I've been, I'm going to lead us in the sermon time today. As you heard before, Rich Sclafani is on vacation. Greg DiLoretto is uh, continuing his sabbatical. And Brian Lake, our worship and arts leader, pastor, is um, on vacation as well. So again, thanks to Ben and Crystal and Aaron and the volunteers like the greeters, coffee team, children's teachers, worship team, prayer team, communion servers, sound team. It takes a lot of people to keep us going, doesn't it? Thanks for holding things together today. Before we begin with our text, let's pray. Father, we know that you want us to build a foundation on you, and I pray that as we listen today, we would learn and hear from your Holy Spirit and remind us all of different ways that we can become more in touch and more in tune with you. Amen. A little bit about myself, just so you help you understand where I'm coming from as we speak today. Um, my wife Heather and I have been part of this church for over 40 years. We got married here. We raised two children who are now adults as part of this community. Uh, so we have a little bit of history with this place, as you can imagine. But in 2015, I got an opportunity through my job to move to England, and I was there for almost four years and returned just about nine months ago. So I had a unique opportunity to worship and learn with another vibrant Christian community while I was away and observe one life from a distance. And I think being in another culture also made me more aware of the culture I was living in in the Seattle area. So we're going to talk about some of those things today, and that'll be part of what you're hearing. So let's uh, look at the text, though, for today. All the Bible verses are from NIV, but um, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, this parable is pretty easy to understand. There's no need to explain who the characters represent or what their actions are representing because Jesus explained this already in the story. Uh, I have an NIV study Bible, nice big thick thing here, and almost every verse has some kind of footnote, but there's no explanation or background footnotes for this parable. I guess that implies it's so simple even a child can understand it. But let's spend a few minutes anyway exploring what the people in Jesus' time might be thinking. That would be familiar, they would be familiar with the seasonal cycle of springtime rain, 
and rivers flooding that provided fertile farmland. <coughs> they would not have dams or flood control, so there was no way for them to control what was going on, but they knew what to expect by observation and experience. The foolish builder would come to some property close to the river after the flood receded and sees this great land, close to water, rich soil for crops and grazing, thinks he or she will settle down there. In summer, the soil is hard and dry and seems solid. No need to dig deep into the rock. That is too much hard work. But during the heavy rains the next spring, the soil will be soggy and unstable, and the foundation will shift. The house and barns will crash down and wash away. The foolish builder probably would not get a lot of sympathy because he or she should have known and probably was told this was going to happen. The wise builder knew about the flooding and the unstable soil. He or she looks a little further uphill from the river. The wise builder knows to dig deeper and anchor the building foundation on the bedrock. When the rains came, the foundation will not shift and the wise builder's house will not crumble during the floods. So nowadays, if you buy a house on a floodplain, you have to get special flood insurance. The foolish builder in our more modern version of the parable would be someone who buys a home on the floodplain but does not get flood insurance for it. Eventually, you know there will be a flood, and when they come, the house will be wiped out and the owner would probably be bankrupt. Now, the main message Jesus wants us to hear was to put our foundation on his teaching. But one of the things I think that might be easy to skip over in this parable is that Jesus stated, not only did we need to listen to the message, but we needed to act out the message. Thanks to those who are here today listening and those of us listening on our online and media podcasts, but it's not enough just to listen. Rich Sclafani discussed this in more detail last week and in the introduction to the parable, and I highly recommend listening if you have not already done so. But we can kind of gloss over this doing part really easily. We get into a rhythm where we do things that are look and feel religious, but do not change our hearts to the actions Jesus wants. I know many times I went to church on Sunday, listened to the sermon, but by Monday noon, I certainly was not thinking about that message. In fact, I might even be hard-pressed to remember the topic or even who spoke. So rhetorically, we ask ourselves, why is this? And I do not have to tell you about the pace of our 21st century lives with 24 by 7 connectivity, demands from jobs, families, education, hobbies, neighbors, homes, because you all are living it. And that is certainly part of it. But let's go a little deeper and think about how we get distracted and then what we can do to get on a more solid foundation. I'm going to make some observations that I think explain some of what Jesus intended to teach us in this parable. Let's start with the second part of this parable first and talk about the foolish builder. Are we, the church representing Jesus Christ on earth now, building on the sand in the floodplains like the foolish builder? 
If we look around at our modern, my ob first observation is the foolish builder is easily distracted and influenced. If we look around at our modern world, we see a lot of distractions and influences, just to name a few, mainstream news media, social media, internet, activities, causes, careers, family, education. We even have people who make a living on the web who claim that as their occupation is influencers. And of course, not all of this is bad stuff, but the pace of our modern lives does not give us a lot of time to ponder and think through how to respond. That makes us more vulnerable and easily led by suggestions that come our way. And in many cases, it only takes a subtle hint for us to jump on a bandwagon and get distracted. The Madison Avenue advertising industry and large corporations have offices in Hollywood specifically for the purpose of product placement. They think it is that important. They do not even have to tell you how good it is or anything about it. They just want you to see the name brand. And do we really fall for that? The following are some examples that show how I think we are being subtly influenced. I heard some assent here from people. <laughs> the, the, the first time I remember hearing about this was about product placement was when the movie E.T. came out. And the candy Reese's Pieces were featured in a particularly poignant scene. Sales went crazy after the movie was released. And here are some more recent examples. Corgis were considered a dying breed. Not enough new puppies were being registered. Then the series The Crown started, and demand for corgis overwhelmed breeders, so they are no longer considered a breed in danger of dying out. Uh, I'm a soccer nut, so I know Gareth Southgate is the manager of the men's England soccer team. And on the sidelines, during the games, he wears a waistcoat, or what we would call a vest of a three-piece suit. In 2016, the England World Cup performance was considered a success, with England getting to the semifinals. During the latter part of that tournament, his waistcoat was a topic of numerous sports, news, and social media discussions, and sales of waistcoats went up 17% in at least one major English clothing store. <laughs> Now, this is the one that really causes me to shake my head and say, really? Booking for trips to Chernobyl, the nuclear disaster site, are up after the miniseries docudrama was released in the UK this spring. Yes, that's right, people are booking vacations to go to a site that was evacuated following a nuclear reactor leak. Now, the radiation there is not at harmful levels, of course, anymore, but this just shows me how easily we can be influenced to do something we'd not considered before just because it becomes popular in the media. And these anecdotal stories imply to me that our media industry knows how to persuade us, even without us realizing it. Now, these particular examples are not necessarily non-Christian influences, but it shows us how humans can be easily persuaded with only the slightest amount of suggestion. The media industry knows how and where to target us pretty well. And the business and entertainment world have embraced this idea of product placement with enthusiasm. In fact, just last week, Netflix made a more aggressive stand against smoking in their shows for that very reason. But it seems a little strange to me that when we suggest that violence, unrestrained sexual lifestyles, and the porn we are exposed to on our screens 
books, songs, and magazines influence us towards those behaviors, it kind of gets brushed off and enveloped in controversy. Oh, come on, you are just a prude. Or, we are just showing how life really is. Or, there is no proof of any connections, or kind of all the standard cliche answers we get when we talk about this subject. I'll go on record, though, as saying we should tone down those things, and it would probably be better for all of us. And the people we surround us with can influence us, not just our friends, but work colleagues, neighbors, family. I had a clear example of this in my life a while ago. I had a boss once who was fixated on the stock market. He would come around to our desk every day and spend 15 to 20 minutes talking about it, And at the time, I commuted from Bellevue to North Seattle, so I listened to a news radio station that provided frequent traffic updates. <coughs> Pardon me. They gave a stock market report every morning, and one morning, I heard the stock market was down, so I told myself, it is a bad day. Just after that thought went through my mind, something made me realize I was totally off track with my thinking. I had been doing this for a while. That is, when I heard the market report, I made a judgment that the day was good or bad based on the performance of the stock market. This was because I had a boss that subtly convinced me that the state of the stock market was an important component of how I should view the world. After that wake-up call to myself, I stopped listening to that radio station for a while to ensure I would not use that report as a way of thinking about my day And of course, that in and of itself did not necessarily make me more Christ-centered. But we do get bombarded on a daily basis with many messages that are not Christ-centered. I do not have to tell you that our education system and work environments are strongly influenced by a secular agenda, which is not always consistent with God's agenda. Let's look at a few other examples of things we hear on a frequent basis, which are not necessarily based on Christian teaching. We hear a lot of it, if it feels good, do it. We're in an instant gratification society, and we, a lot of what we hear tries to convince us that we will feel good if we indulge whatever they are selling, the sooner the better. And then not only do we have institutions built around this idea of satisfying our cravings, we have institutions built around fixing or mitigating the consequences of whatever we end up breaking whenever we do whatever felt good at the time. For example, unrestrained sexual appetites lead to STT treatments and abortion clinics. We need 12-step programs, counseling, and other clinics to fix our gambling, drinking, or drug addictions. Affairs, lying, and abandonment lead to marriages failing, with courts and lawyers trying to figure out child custody and divorce settlements. Sounds like kind of a vicious cycle, doesn't it? Another message we hear a lot is secularism. That is, I can do this myself. I do not need God. In recent years, the most played song at funerals and wakes is not a hymn, but Frank Sinatra's version of My Way. Even our space exploration in the future of the human race now has a flavor of this. Jeff Bezos has made a proposal for sustainable increased human population by moving people off the planet into space. Talk about moving into the suburbs. <laughs> Stephen Hawking was a big proponent of figuring out how to move the human race to other parts of the universe, since he realized our planet will be destroyed by the sun in a few billion years. 
He also was trying to prove his multiverse theory, which would prove that the Big Bang was not the start of the entire universe, but just another universe itself generated from the eternal cosmos. By the way, as a side note, scientists were slow to accept the Big Bang theory when it was first introduced, because it implied there was a beginning to the universe, which sounded dangerously close to religious ideas about how the universe began. Pardon me here. In his sermon on the 2nd of June, Greg DiLoretto talked about the me syndrome. Everyone is out for themselves. As a result of this, this is a result of that same philosophy. I am on my own, accountable to no one. His sermon I am on, uh, about I am the great shepherd contains some examples of this, and in fact, has much the same theme as our parable. That is, we need to follow the true shepherd. And there is a Christian version of doing this on our own as well, which we have traditionally called legalism. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were strong proponents of this. Even though they acknowledged God and claimed to be serving him, in practice they were trying to redeem themselves through strict observance of a set of rules. Jesus had a lot of conversations in the Gospels where he noted that this aspect of the Pharisees' philosophy was not acting out God's agenda. And we can fall into this trap anytime we think we are better than some other group because of our behavior or attitudes. And the one thing the media doesn't want you to think about is that they are good at showing the outliers and extremes. Only rarely do they show the normal. A person who gets up at 5 a.m. to start their daily routine, goes to work in traffic, works eight to 10 hours a day, comes home, does some chores, spends time with the family, and falls asleep exhausted at 10 p.m., is not gonna make a reality show. <laughs> but it does reflect the lifestyle of myself and many of my colleagues whom I work with, and I bet it for you as well. Instead, we get a steady diet of female models who do not represent most women's body types, men with six-pack abs, rich and famous people trying to pretend they are just like us. We see people glorifying outlandish behaviors and crazy stunts, who are campaigning us to consider doing it as well. And the problem is we start to think that these extremes are normal. And as Americans, we hear all the time that the product we recently purchased is not good anymore because there is a bigger, better, faster, more capable version out there now that you need to get to make your life easier and better. I think the following quote from a sermon by Hills Grew at the church Heather and I went to in England profoundly states what can happen when we get a steady diet of worldly viewpoint. In the Western world, our biggest problem is not persecution, it is seduction. <clears throat> I'll just say that again. In the Western world, our biggest problem is not persecution, it is seduction. In this sermon, she discussed the importance of reading the scripture, and she noted how easy it is to be distracted from that important activity. She went, Hills went on to explain that we are very vulnerable to following the world's example, so we need to read the scripture so we know and can apply Jesus' teaching and example. And we're going to discuss this a little later as well. But what can we learn about these observations about how we can be influenced? 
It reminds us that we need to be careful about the inputs we have in our lives and how we are using those inputs. We are culturally biased by good, neutral, and bad inputs, and the patterns and behavior in our life will reflect these. We cannot el eliminate every input that is not Christ-centered, but we can take every input through our filter that includes how to respond to that in a Christ-centered way. More importantly, we need to spend time practicing the traditional Christian spiritual disciplines to enable us to be in tune with God. If we are not listening and reading the words of Jesus on a regular basis, how can we put them into practice? <clears throat> the foundation that Jesus wants us to build on is his words. The expectation that the Messiah would be the foundation for God's work through Israel was well established in the books of the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah and Ezekiel. In the New Testament, we have writers that refer to Jesus as the cornerstone or rock, which emphasizes the physical, which supersedes the physical temple building and the sacrifice system. We know that we should be listening and acting on the words of Jesus, but exactly what is this message that Jesus was talking about? The wise builder knows and practices that the kingdom of God is here. In Matthew 3, verse 1, John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, states the kingdom of God is near. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples with the message, the kingdom of God is near. He tells the 72 sent out in Luke 10 the same message. Just in Matthew, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is mentioned about 50 times. So this must be a pretty important message to be mentioned so many times. So what is the kingdom of God? If you look at the specific context of the wise and foolish builder in Matthew, it is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And isn't the Sermon on the Mount really a discussion of the kingdom of God? We start with the Beatitudes, which describes the upside-down values of God's kingdom against our normal worldly standards. The next part of the sermon explains how the Ten Commandments were God's plan for his kingdom. For example, there will not be murder in God's kingdom. There will not even be name-calling. There will not be adultery. In fact, in God's kingdom, there will not even be covetous thoughts. In God's kingdom, we do not need sworn testimony to get truthful statements. Everyone will tell the truth always. Jesus goes further to, to say, in God's kingdom, we will love our enemies, be generous to those in need, and look to the Father for our needs. Throughout the Gospels, in Jesus' ministry, he uses healing of the sick to show God's kingdom is breaking it into our domain. I think one story that describes Jesus' interaction with the, or Jesus' description of the kingdom of God was his interaction with the disciples of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 1 through 5. And this... After Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Many Israelites at the time of Jesus 
thought the Messiah would be a type of superhero military political leader that stomped out the heathen oppressive Romans and would set up a Jewish theocracy where they could worship Yahweh without foreign interference. I wonder if John, just like some of Jesus' disciples, thought maybe Jesus was this type of Messiah. Was John or his disciples thinking, Jesus, your main campaigner is in jail. It would be a good time for you now to break into your super Jesus mode, free your buddy, and start the campaign to kick out Rome. I mean, in the superhero movie, that is what we would expect to happen at this part of the plot, right? Instead, Jesus gives an answer that describes the kingdom of God come to earth. This was a clear message to those who would listen that the kingdom of God was not a political or institutional thing. You see healing and the good news being preached, that is the kingdom of God. Jesus explained how God was working in their midst. Jesus performed both physical healing and spiritual renewal. He showed them God was working in their midst through his life, death, and resurrection. And isn't that a message we can use in our world today? All this discussion about the kingdom of God sounds like the utopia we all want to live in, doesn't it? It seems amazingly simple, yet we look around in this world and we go, it is oh so far away. We start thinking, when Jesus was here, maybe, maybe he could bring it about, but do we expect that to happen in our time, in our community? I think part of the answer to that is in John verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the last time Jesus will be with his disciple before he dies. And what he tells them seems shocking. It is for your good that I am going away. Our modern celebrity-based culture kind of cringes at this. Having God in person seems like a pretty cool thing, right? Jesus, shouldn't you get all the airtime and exposure you can to spread your message? But then look what it says. God will be present after I'm gone, this time as the counselor. What, you call, what we call the Holy Spirit living inside each Christian. He goes on to explain the Holy Spirit is the one that can change people's hearts. This leads to my final observation. The wise builder relies on the Holy Spirit. God has put the Holy Spirit in the heart of each believer. We all know that we cannot, in our own strength, bring about the kingdom of God. We need to learn to listen and be guided by the Holy Spirit. We talked earlier about the distractions and influences in our life that keep us from hearing. In some cases, the solution will be to cut back on those voices and move more toward the traditional Christian disciplines, especially worship, meditation, prayer, fasting, scripture study, community, and giving. And when we do that, we put ourselves in a better position to hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I think hearing the promptings of the Holy Spirit can be like how a visiting team playing American football at CenturyLink Field communicates on offense. There's a lot of noise coming from the crowd trying to disrupt the communications that the quarterback wants to have for making a successful play. We're kind of like the wide receiver 20 yards from the quarterback calling the signals. 
you have to listen very carefully or watch very closely for the subtle signs that tell you the play has changed. If you pay attention to the noise, you will definitely miss out. You have to pay attention to the subtle movements and distinct voices of your teammates, not the loud, overwhelming voice of the crowd. And that is how we can all be like the wise builder. We can put our foundations on the presence of God living in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who can lead us to action that is consistent with the expansion of the kingdom of God. Our template would be the book of Acts, which describes how the early church was able to turn the world upside down. Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, describes how they stayed in tune with the Holy Spirit through prayer, community, teaching, and sharing. And Brian Lake even talked about this three weeks ago in his sermon about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. He discussed how we can appropriate the power of the resurrection in our world, our world that is in between stage with the work of Jesus complete, but the kingdom not fully implemented. This world where we can engage with others and ourselves in the hard realities of life and learn how to become creators that overcome the circumstances. And wouldn't it be great if our church got a reputation as a place where healing happens, where peace is restored, where compassion is available, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit were evident? And I know that's already happened in this congregation. And we have seen healing and deliverance in people's lives. But I am looking forward to hearing and seeing God move even more powerfully through our community as we observe the power of the Holy Spirit moving through us. Could the worship and prayer team come up and take their places now? How can we apply this? So I have some questions for you. Use your connection card to write down some thoughts, and if you want, you can put them in the wooden box at the back if you have comments for us. That will give us a better idea what connected with people and how we can pray. Or you can take it home as a reminder this week of how you plan to be a wise builder. And maybe you need some prayer to help you engage with this topic. Our prayer team will be up front to help you with that. I think there's someone in this congregation today who needs to, who wants to see more powerfully the kingdom of God move in their lives. And I'm hoping that they would come to the prayer team to ask for blessing and power and anointing to do that. Our questions are, what is distracting you from more clearly hearing what God wants to do through you? And what can you change to help focus better on growing God's kingdom in my life? Or, what ways is God's kingdom working in my life already? And how is God prompting me to continue or expand that work? Or question, the last question was, am I doing anything to resist or restrain the Holy Spirit? If so, which disciplines can I engage to become more in tune with what he is doing with my life? <laughs>